Welcome to episode 98. Today, Elwyn Kersfield joins us to talk about raising bilingual families. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. I look at my nephews and my nieces who were all born into Vietnamese American households. They would constantly hear Vietnamese and interact with Vietnamese people since they were born. But slowly, like a seedling in the shade of a giant tree, the Vietnamese started to disappear. Now, they can understand Vietnamese, but only respond in English. I often think to myself, how did we get here as a family? In this conversation, lecturer, author, researcher, and consultant, Erwin Crestfield shares how families have to be intentional about raising bilingual children. Even if you don't have children or live in a bilingual family, this conversation is for you as teachers of multilingual children. Elwin talks about the dangers of schools limiting schools' first languages and what effect that has on children. Please listen to the very end of the podcast when Elwin shares why starting with one primary language at the beginning of our learning actually supports bilingualism in the later years. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited to have a friend and colleague come all the way from England to our shores and to our earbuds. Today, expert internationally known author and consultant is particularly in Europe, Ellen Crisfield. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Oh. Well, that's it's it. one of my favorite podcasts. <laughs> oh, well, I'm honored. There's not a lot of us out there, but um, we're, I appreciate that. So Erwin, would you tell us about, you're here to talk about bilingual families and we kind of just started talking about your family at home and it was such a fun conversation. Can you tell us what your family looks like and your bilingual family looks like? Well, my bilingual family is an exercise in what not to do <laughs> with your children. <laughs> and I talk about that in the book. And, you know, um, so I, I'm Canadian. I was raised English speaking, English only. As an adult, I became a fluent French speaker by choice. I moved to Quebec and I learned to speak French. And I married an American who's English speaking only by default. <laughs> and um, so when we had kids, we agreed that I would speak to them in French and he would speak to them in English. And my oldest daughter was born in Montreal. So that was going to be, you know, perfectly easy to do. French, English, balance, school, everything. And then when she was three months old, we moved to the Netherlands. And so that threw a, fa a little spanner in my family language plan. And we added Dutch into our family language plan. And then when she was four and a half years old, I had twins. And that threw another spanner into our family language plan because um, we brought our twins home from the hospital and put them down in the living room. And Maddie looked at them and said, I'm going to speak to them in English because English kids are more fun. 
And so she determined herself that even though her maternal language from me was French, she was not going to speak French to them because she thought that they would be more fun if they were English speaking. And that was just related to the schools she went to and the friends she had at other schools and her relationships with them. But it was, you know, I think it, it really encapsulates the very strong will of children when it comes to their own language profiles. Um, and so my twins grew up far stronger in Dutch than in French because they had a Dutch uh, nanny. So they had English at home, some French at home, Dutch from the nanny, Dutch outside. And so their, their profiles were completely flipped to hers originally. She was stronger in English and French and not in Dutch, and they were stronger in English and Dutch and not in French. And then they went to a French school for three years and their French got a lot better. And then we moved them into a European school, which was English language for educational reasons, because I thought I knew that the way the French school system worked wouldn't suit one of my twins. It would not be the right system for that child. And so they then became English dominant again. And so they have very different profiles. My oldest is kind of, you know, in, in the way that many bilingual families find our most successful, if you will, bilingual. Um, fluent English, fluent French, very good Dutch, very good Spanish. She can speak Latin too. Wow. <laughs> and so she can say, I am the Lorax, I speak for the trees in seven languages. You know, if she, if she, she's my prodigy. <laughs> but, you know, my, my twins have very different personalities, very different interests. They're not as linguistically inclined as she is. They didn't have the same kind of, you know, surroundings. And so they're, they're strongly English dominant and they speak, you know, Dutch and French conversationally. Um, but neither of them have the strong interest in languages that she does. And so um, I always tell parents at the beginning of my parent seminar that the parent seminar is 50% what we know from research, and 50% what I've learned from my children, um, because they've taught me so much along the way about what kids will and won't do and what kids can and can't do. I feel like I want to ask you that, like, what have your kids taught you? But before we get to that, tell us about, I guess you, maybe we should talk about that. One of my questions was, uh, tell us a story that has really informed your practice. And so you've kind of started to the, to talk about that. Would you give us a specific one from your family? I, uh, I, I will give you a specific one, but not from my family, if that's okay. Absolutely. Because it's the story that all of my parent audiences love the most. And I think it really kind of just, you know, crystallizes what what the issue is um, in bi a lot of bi bilingual families. Years ago when I was living in the Netherlands, I was contacted by a couple. He was Dutch and she was Russian. Um, and they asked me if I would do family language planning with their family. They had a six-year-old daughter. Um, and so I went over and I met them and we talked about what, you know, what issues they were looking to, to deal with. And, and the Russian-speaking mother said, my daughter refuses to speak Russian now. She can. She always has with me and now she won't. Right. And so I sat down with the little girl around the table and I said, will you speak some Russian with me? She said, oh, no, I can't. And I said, well, I, I think Russian is really neat. Why can't you speak Russian with me? And she said, because Russian is a secret language. To the look on her mom's face. <laughs> so I said, that's interesting. What do you mean Russian is a secret language? And she said, well, mommy always speaks Russian to me. But as, someone, as soon as someone else walks into the room, she changes to Dutch or English. And so in her little six-year-old brain, that meant Russian was a, a secret language. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the point that I highlight to parents all the time is we need to talk to our children about their languages and about their, their, you know, their linguistic environment and who speaks what language and why. And we need to be very careful not to model to them our language is only important when we're alone. Mm 
because so many parents do that because they think it's rude to use their language in front of someone else um, or they think it will make people uncomfortable. And so that, you know, parents make decisions that seem very rational. They, you know, they're adults, they think about things, they decide, I think I should do it this way. But they often don't stop to think about what's that going to be perceived as from a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a six-year-old. And those perceptions really give kids the message whether or not this language is important, whether or not I should use it in public, you know, all those kinds of things that they pick up. And so they, they're not doing what we want them to do. And we don't know why, so we get frustrated. But most of the time it's because what we are telling them, we're not modeling for them. Right. And often there are the things we tell them through our actions right, speak louder than what we actually say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I saw this. I mean, we lived in the Netherlands for 15 years. Um, and another little story, uh, when my daughter was two and a half, I went into a cheese shop with her and a friend who was English and her son, who was the same age as my daughter. And in the Netherlands, if you're a, if you're a child in a cheese shop, they offer you a piece of cheese and they say platicas, which means piece of cheese, and they get all free piece of cheese. So I ordered in Dutch and the lady offered my daughter platicas and my friend ordered in English and her son did not get a piece of cheese. The, the Dutch cheese ladies, her English wasn't very good. And it's just a reflex for them in French, in Dutch to say black a So, you know, she wasn't being mean. She just didn't think to say it. And so as this little two and a half year old boy was laying on the floor, kicking and screaming because he didn't get any cheese, I was thinking, mm, that was very interesting. <clears throat> Fast forward, he's now 18 years old and he still doesn't speak any Dutch. Wow. He moved to the Netherlands when he was three weeks old. And it was because of, not because his parents said they don't want him to learn Dutch, but because they consistently modeled, we don't do that. Right. Because they, you know, all those hangups, oh, you know, we're not very good language learners. Oh, you don't really need to learn Dutch here. And so you're absolutely right. What parents do is far more powerful than what parents say. Right. It's actions that speak louder than words. Right. It's absolutely. Ugh. So you, you touched on something that I wanted to really talk about, Spe people using their home languages in front of others, because I have now working at many international <clears throat> schools, I am privy to their policies and many policies that I see, I see head of schools, principals will say, when we're working in a multilingual <clears throat> group, everyone speaks the common language, which defaults to English. Yeah. How would you address that? Oh, well, I'd start with the Article 30 of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, <laughs> which allows that all children have the right to their language. So that's that, that's a fairly con con confrontational place to start. So if I wanted to start somewhere less confrontational, we would talk about how it limits children in their engagement and their participation and their development to not be allowed to learn to use the language in which they feel the most at home um, and that they're you know i mean i i know also of so many schools international schools state schools that have these rules because they think it's what's right um, and you can only speak english and in, in the class or in the school and a they don't work and B, if you tell a child your language is bad here, they will use that language to do bad things. If you tell a child your language is welcome here, you can use it for learning, 
they will use it for learning. And I've seen that in schools all around the world, that when you engage with children, when you dialogue with them, when you develop classroom language policies with them, when you develop their sense of agency in when I use a particular language and why, and when I make a different choice, and how that impacts the people around me, you can have a much more harmonious and enjoyable classroom situation that supports students across the board and they learn English. Right. It doesn't I, have to be either or. Right. I think of Dr. Jim Cummings, he <clears throat> said, when we uh, do not allow students home language at school, we don't allow students at school, their culture yeah. at school, right? And so Absolutely. we say, when your language is not welcome, it's very, the, the thin line between your, the language is not welcome and your culture is not welcome. Your culture is Absolutely. not valued. Yeah. And everything you know is not welcome. Because if you can't tell me in English, then it's not welcome. And that's a pretty powerful message to give to kids that the only valuable language is language encoded, is, is the only valuable knowledge is knowledge encoded in English. Right. Oh, that's colonialism, lingualism. I say all the time, it's neo-colonialism at its best, the English right. language teaching industry. Let's talk about, uh, so let's say that principal or head of school, they say, well, we have a group of four kids. There are two kids who are speaking Korean and another kid, well, all three, the four kids, three speak Korean, one doesn't. Let's all speak English. What do you say to that? It's the same thing. A, why? What's the purpose? So what's the objective? And B, what's the outcome on the kids? and see how can you help the kids make decisions for themselves that will help their learning instead of dictating. So in that situation, the right thing to do is for the most, most of the time the kids speak English, so as not to exclude that one child. That's learned behavior. And so if those three Korean kids really feel like they don't understand what's happening and they want to support each other, they're going to use Korean together anyway. They're gonna do it under the hand, with their back turned, what, you know, whatever they, because they need to know what they don't know. And in that act, they're going to exclude the other child anyway. Yes. If you have a classroom policy that says you can use your language to check learning if you want to, just let your table mates know, then those three Korean kids would say to the other child, we're not sure we understand. We're just going to check with each other in Korean and then can we check with you in English? Yes. And then you've got a collaborative environment yeah. where everybody's getting their needs met without anybody feeling excluded. And why wouldn't you do that when it will be better for the kids and better for their learning? Right. It's also so unfair because, for example, let's just say that those three Korean kids are developing their English skills. They're much more fluent in Korean. And the kid who's, let's say, Thai uh, is <laughs> really good in English. Now those three kids are having a hard time communicating with the Thai kid who speaks English fluently. And so now they don't have the ability to collaborate like before. I think of the UN, I always, when people tell me, oh, everyone has to speak English. I'm like, when you go to the UN, these are the heads of states. They're not required to have English when they come to the podium to speak. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really good example of when you need to say something important and powerful, you need to not be restricted by language. Exactly. Let's talk about your book. Where, what, what was the seed of bilingual families? Oh boy, yeah, well, it wasn't a seed uh, uh, so much as a, um, a maze field. <laughs> it was a book that came from hundreds of families that I've worked with over the years. And 
you know, like, I, I mean, I've, I've given my, my raising bilingual children seminar to thousands and thousands of parents, and I've worked directly with hundreds and hundreds of parents. And, um, and so I just thought about it over, year, over years of doing family language planning. What is it families need? What's the basic information they need to make good decisions? What structures do they need to take the, that information and turn it into a plan? You know, like that whole process was just completely organic from my work with families. And actually, I had a, uh, you know, the publisher was interested in the book. Uh, I first pitched it in 2013. Um, uh, and it came out in 2021. <laughs> the manuscript was finished in 2019, I will say that. But um, it, it took a long time for me to figure out exactly in my head how to structure it to make sure that it was concise. I mean, you know what the field of multilingualism is like. You can write a book like this, but I really wanted it to be accessible and then, you know, build in those kind of useful things like the templates. Um, and so, you know, once I sat down to write, I actually wrote it in two weeks. Um, yeah, it, <laughs> now, it needed a lot of editing. It needed a lot of editing. But, you know, from putting the first word on paper to putting the last word of the paper on first draft, two weeks. I sent my family away. I took two weeks. I went to Northern Wales, which is a wonderful bilingual environment. Exactly. Can't sit in kind of my monolingual town in Oxfordshire and be inspired. After the bilingual environment, Northern Wales, and just wrote. But by then, I was so clear in what I needed to say that it all just kind of came out of my head. You're like and, the, you know, the structure, I knew the structure and just went. And then, of course, it did need, you know, huge amounts of editing. I don't even say I wrote a finished book in two weeks, but everything was in there that was ultimately in there at the end. Right. You're, you remind me of J.K. Rowling when she was writing her book. She went to a, she rented a castle and she said, I'm staying there for a month and I'm finishing my Harry Potter book. Okay. Ooh, that's what I need to do. <laughs> I could use a month in a castle. I could write a book if I could do that. Right. <laughs> so you've talked about now the research side. What's the myth around bilingualism? That's one of your chapters in your book. The myth? <laughs> well, there are many. Yes. I would start with the first one. I think the first and most important one for parents to understand is that children are not sponges. Mm. That it's the most prevalent, predominant global myth about children that's based on research about bilingual infants. And so, you know, it's extrapolating research in ways that don't work. And, but what it causes parents to feel like, so it causes immense pressure for parents because they feel like if we don't do it early, we won't do it at all. So it feeds into the earlier is better myth because if they're sponges when they're, when they're younger, then earlier must be better. And it feeds into a competitiveness around languages. Right. My child already speaks two languages. I'd like to put them in a bilingual program to learn two more. They're four years old. Why? Well, because more languages is better because earlier is better because they're sponges. And so, you know, it, parents, some kinds of parents, not all parents, kind of feel like if they cram in as many languages as they can before the age of five or something, their child will be successful. And that's not how language acquisition works. Right. You can cram in a language before a child is five and then leave it for a year and that language will be gone. They will have forgotten it. Um, and so I, I really try and emphasize they're not sponges. It takes time and effort quality over quantity. Let's start talking about the case for bilingualism now that you've talked about the myths of bilingualism. 
So I think that there are so many important reasons for children to become bilingual. Um, I think the least important reason is the potential cognitive advantages. They get a lot of airtime and they get a lot of news time. Bilingualism makes people smarter and better executive functioning and better decision making. All of that I think is irrelevant. And I think it feeds into the idea of bilingualism as a market commodity. And I think that that's doing immense, immense damage globally as well, looking at bilingualism in terms of its um, you know, value for the economy and for the marketability of a child when they're an adult. Right. And I think the cognitive advantages leads us down that road. I think there are linguistic advantages in terms of linguistic flexibility, in terms of thinking about how languages work. And, you know, we do know that children who are bilingual from a young age are tend to be better at learning other languages later. So if they want to move to another country, they'll be better prepared because they're not stuck in like, I can only one use one language. But I think potentially, globally, the most important area uh, of research is the focus on um, social and emotional benefits. And the, you know, the, the research that's coming out of, so in Montreal, there's quite a, a strong um, basis of research around trilingual children that shows that young trilinguals are more open to people who are different from them, more empathetic communicators, um, you know, they're not scared of people who are you know, different. And I think all of those that, and, and I can see that really clearly in my work, young bilingual children are so open about language. So I'm going to talk to you in Spanish. And if you don't understand, I'm going to try German. And if you don't understand, I'll use my hands because they're used to, you know, constantly getting, I don't understand you from one parent or another or from their teacher. And so they just build this kind of they're, you know, they, they want to communicate and they're not put off by not having immediate success in the way that I see a lot of, you know, monolingual kids. They walk up to a child, they speak in English, the child looks at them and they don't they don't make any further effort because they don't know what to do. You know, they've not developed that skill of accommodation and thinking about what the listener needs that we talk about all the time. And, and so I think those kind of social benefits are immense. And I think also just, you know, I think of, Languages are doors and windows. And people focus on the doors to education, to jobs, to migration. But the windows are the windows to other ways of thinking, other ways of doing, other ways of being. And I think we underestimate the value of that immensely. I think you're tapping in Dr. Rusin, Rudine Sims Bishops when you talk about windows, doors, and sliding. So mirrors, she talks about windows. Books are like windows mirrors and sliding glass doors so when we oh read, i didn't i don't know that yeah when we read a okay. book we can see ourselves better okay when we read a book we can understand another world so we see into another world yeah okay. and when we read a book we get to move into the, the world okay and so i just look into and so i think you're yeah. talking about the same thing the concept of languages are saying oh languages help us see each other so those yeah. windows mm -hmm. it helps us see us so mm -hmm. culturally so mirrors, yeah. and it helps us interact with others to understand a different way of being because language shapes the way of being. Yeah. I also really appreciate now, this is a little bit of like teacher therapy for me. Uh, you, <laughs> I used to stand in front of parents and teachers to say, it's like, when you have bilingual, multilingual kids, they get better jobs, they are cognitively functioning higher, they go all these research of all these things. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm commodifying, or I'm trying to market yeah. Language, right. And it's like, but language is, it's not, that's just not the only thing we wanted to think about in language. No, no. It's really and it should be enough in itself, another language. 
without having to justify it in other ways. That's beautiful. So another structure you have in your book is about, uh, this whole book is about family planning. Can you talk about it, how it has to be? It seems like just like the way we teach kids, we don't just wing it. If we want bilingual, multilingual families, we don't just wing it. So what's your plan? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it really depends on the context. You know, I work with schools in, in you know, a couple of different African countries and in India. And when I talk about family language planning with those parents, they look at me and go, what? It's always a little hand up, you know. We here in India are all multilingual and no one's ever had a plan. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's, it's like a completely foreign concept. And, and my book isn't really for those people per se, because when you raise a child in a multilingual environment, so like in India, where your mother speaks Gujarati and your father speaks Telugu and you go to school in English and Hindi and your, your, you know, your grandmother speaks Maranti, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're swimming in languages and they're, in, and they're getting all these people talking to them in Hindi and all these people in Gujarati. And, you know, it's just a really rich multilingual environment. If you are a, a Gujarati mother and a German father trying to raise your child as a Gujarati German English trilingual in Vietnam, your community of practice is going to be very small. And the smaller your community of practice, the more you have to plan for input because we all know that input is the prime condition for language development. If they don't get enough input, they won't develop the language. And so if only one parent uses the language with a child, that's not very much input. And so the planning aspect comes in. Why well, start with setting your goals. What do you want them to be able to do with the language? Because parents often think that just using their language at home will mean their child can go to university one day in that language. Like A to Z, nothing in the middle. I'm just going to use my language. And that is not going to happen. No. Um, and so they need to think about, so if I have a communicative goal for a language, I just want my child to be able to play with their cousins, visit their family, go on holidays. That's going to take so much input. And it's all conversational and that's okay. If I want my child to be literate in the language, I've got to spend more time. We've got to look at different vocabulary, growing some academic capacity, lots of reading and learning to write. If I want my child to have full academic literacy in a language, like to go to university or work in it, that's another step of engagement and responsibility on the part of the parents. And that's what they need to think about in their planning is what do we want our kids to be able to do ultimately? Because you can't start planning for that at 16. And even, you know, often by eight, it's too late. If you haven't given enough input by then, you expect them to catch it up, plus keep on top of their other languages. And so you've really got to start when they're young, thinking about how much input are they getting? What kind of input is it? Is it going to be rich enough? How are we going to make sure their vocabulary develops? Where are the books? Where are the books? <laughs> you know, and I see a lot of, you know, multilingual families. They've got, you know, stacks of wonderful children's books in Japanese. And their kids are 12. It's like th these are the books that are available for them in Japanese and you wonder why they're not reading in Japanese. So when the kids, you know, kids are like zero to four, they pay a lot of attention to buying them board books and reading them stories. But as the kids get older, they don't keep buying them stories and keep reading to them. They just let the school take over and school language take over. And so really like anything else in life, you have a better chance of success if you know where you're going and how you're getting there. Right. We have to be super intentional with the, language policy that we're going to the language planning that we're going to have yeah. at our families because i think i think plans or if you don't have a plan you have consistent actions yeah. i guess the people that live in india you're talking about like they live in multilingual communities they don't have a plan because they have consistent actions they go to their mm -hmm. grandmother 
then they go to their grandfather, then they go to the market, then they go to school. And those are all consistent. People think do things consistently. And so that's like mm -hmm. the plan. And I think the other thing you're talking about is if we don't plan it intentionally, it might be too late because I'm thinking about my nieces right now and they understand my conversations in Vietnamese fully and I intentionally speak to them and only in Vietnamese, but they don't speak back yeah. in Vietnamese because the language, have the, the reading we've done in for that with them is all in English to prepare them for school. All the, uh, all the exercises, all the TV shows are all in English because they live in an English speaking community in America. Uh, mm -hmm. So what can you talk about that? Like the kids who understand, but they can't produce. So that's really common. That's passive bilingualism. And I think, you know, what, what, what we underestimate is how much children are like adults in terms of languages. So if I'm okay at a language and I can understand what people are saying to me and I walk into a store and they give me a choice to speak English, I'm gonna pick English because right. I'm smarter in English and it's easier in English. And kids are the same. They've got Vietnamese, which they can understand pretty well, but it's gonna be far more work for them to try and say to you in Vietnamese what they wanna say. And they know you speak English, so what's the point? And so we somehow expect, I mean, as adults, we know we are, so many of us are so linguistically lazy. We get our phrase book when we used to be able to travel, we get our phrase book, our Duolingo, and we practice and we go to Portugal on holidays and we walk in and we're ready to speak Portuguese and they're like, oh, English? And they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> we all default to the languages we're better at. Kids are no different than adults. Um, and so what you need to do is you need to and, and this is where the, the conversations with your children come in, especially when they're older. You need to talk to them about why Vietnamese is important. <clears throat> why we do this crazy Vietnamese thing when, when everybody else around us speaks English. Um, but then you need to talk about, you know, what would it need? What would you need for you to be more comfortable trying to use Vietnamese with me? Especially with an eight-year-old. At that point, you've got to have them participating and buy-in. And so with older kids, you need to start to have those discussions. Is there any space for us to maybe... One night a week, we'll try and have dinner together in Vietnamese. No pressure. You can still use English if you want, but we're going to give it a go. Try and draw them back. Um, the other thing you can do with kids who are still younger is really um, find what um, I call kind of the monolingual imperative, situations in which only that language will work. So now this is really difficult. I used to meet community groups in the Netherlands all the time. They say, oh, we made a Spanish speaking play group so our kids could all speak Spanish together because you said it's really important for them to play with other kids in Spanish. And within five minutes in that playroom, all the kids had realized they go to school in English and there's no Spanish happening. Just, just the moms and dads over there are speaking Spanish. And so it can be really different, difficult in an, especially in an English speaking environment. But so whatever you can do to connect with people who speak that language and can use it with the children, whether that means having the grandparents read a, you know, a story every night for five minutes over Zoom before bedtime, just to give them five minutes a day of interaction, whether that means bringing in board games that are traditional and played in other languages. Um, one of the most successful strategies that works for families is to hire a teenager who speaks the language to come and play with the kids because where the kids won't do it with their parents, teenagers are a lot of fun. Teenagers are a lot more motivating. You pay them less than you pay a tutor. Um, but also, you know, as a parent or as an uncle, it's not ethical to say to your nieces, I don't understand you when they speak to you in English because you do and you're lying to them. 
But there's a gray space in that ethicality of can you hire a teenager to pretend they don't understand English? <laughs> and so it's really just, you know, finding little ways to nudge them right. so that they, you know, so that they're willing to give it a try. But it, but it's also accepting that, you know, like my own two children, it, especially in, a, in an English dominant environment, it's very hard for kids to understand the why. Right. for another language and so sometimes it's just about continuing to use it yourself with them right so that when they get to the point in their lives when they go actually i really would like to speak vietnamese they have enough to keep, right. get them going right i think about my nieces as i'm working with them this summer just spending time with them when my four-year-old niece and i are playing together mm -hmm. she likes to do uh, painting by stickers right and so we'll painting say stickers? yeah there's like a picture of like a wizard and there's cut off little pieces and you put 36 and you okay. get, find the 36 block sticker and you put it in 36. So it's like paint by numbers, but less messy. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Less messy. <laughs> it's great for parents and uncles who don't like to clean up after their nieces. <laughs> so we'll, she'll point to say, I'll say, I'll say this number and I'll say, uh, sao, which means 36 in Vietnamese. And mm -hmm. she'll say, she'll say, sao, and I say, now say it in English. To say 30 and I'll, I'll go I'll she knows English much more. So I'll say 30 yeah. and she'll go six. And so yeah. that's how I'm trying to do it bilingually with my with my yeah. uh, four year old with my eight year old who is I think a little bit later now. Uh, we're now just saying like say this word now in Vietnamese or can you say that again in, in Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. And so she's struggling to have full communi like communicative phrases and sentences. Yeah. But now she's she's saying words and phrases. Yeah. We're just trying to keep it because it's, I think it's too yeah. late. Because the risk is now I'm losing my relationship with my niece if I force her to speak Vietnamese because yeah. she's like, I don't want to speak to you. It's too hard. But yeah, I, I want to know about her swim meet. I want to know about what, like, what was her event? How did she do in her butterfly, right? But when we are learning the routine of getting ready for swimming, we say, mm -hmm. okay, when you rub your sunscreen, and I say it in Vietnamese, and so she hears mm -hmm. it, right? Yeah. And so I say, where are you going to put it? And she'll say, tamak, which means on your face. Yeah. Right? And so that, it's slow. Yeah. And that's absolutely the experience of so many multilingual parents is at some point it becomes, do I push it and risk my relationship with my child exactly. or do I let it go? And you always have to prioritize your race relationship with your right. children. You know, like, right. I mean, I moved my children out of the French school, even though I really wanted them to have full fluency in French because I knew it wasn't going to be a good fit educationally. And you can't. You can't make language everything. There are other, I mean, of course, I'm a linguist. Language is everything. But you have to take into account other things that are important for your family and for your children as well and have language be one of the things that you consider when making big decisions, but not the only thing. But I really think that like the, your experience with your eight-year-old niece, it's really helped by just having honest conversations with them about, I don't want to make it hard for you and I don't want to make you do it. But, you know, we really feel like it would, it would be our fault. It would be a terrible thing for us to do to let your Vietnamese go. So tell us when you're ready to give it a try and we'll use a little bit, but we'll try not to push you. Right. Because if we push them, they'll put be pushed away from the language and the Absolutely. culture and in yeah. us in turn. What would you say to starting off with, in your plan? How do we make it? How do we start off with like little kids, the youngest kids? So you just start out as you mean to continue. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, like, the younger children are, when the parents make a plan, the better chance there is of success. It's far harder to fix the mistakes we've made. Right. 
than to get it right from the beginning. Um, and it's, that's not always easy for families. I have met many families who are having a lot of kind of couple issues because of languages, because they hadn't thought about it before they had kids. I mean, one of the things I say in my parents' seminars, you know, you chose bilingualism for your children. Some of you chose it because you accidentally married somebody who speaks another language, and now you have to face the consequence. But so many people don't even think about it, or they just think it will be easy, and why would we even bother to talk about it? And then when it becomes difficult, it causes you know a lot you know a lot of times tensions in the couple because one part of the of the couple will value one of the languages more than the other, mm. um, and so the you know the process of family language planning when kids are younger gets you you put those things on the table when they're younger rather than letting them fester until they're ten and say well you never valued my language anyway because like, I get a lot of that <laughs> um, and and so and and I think you know just really being clear about who needs to do what in order for us to meet the goals that we're, you know, that we've set for our children um, so that you have a clear plan. Because a lot of times when, when children are not talking to us, when they're very little, people don't think so much about it, but actually the first six to 12 months are really prime language development time. And if you don't start thinking about using your language with your child until they're a year old, you've lost an amazing opportunity. Right. right. In your chapter, you talked about like uh, supporting family, supporting the family language plan. And so really it's like, when I hear that, I think about, okay, what are the structures we're gonna build in to support this family plan? Like, yeah. what, what are we gonna read to kids? When are we gonna read to kids? And what language are we gonna read to kids? When we speak to them, how are we going to talk to them how are they going to speak to us back uh, so that leads us to that a, you can't influence right. <laughs> the how you speak to us back is going to be for the child to decide well, let's talk about that let's have about uh, what are the suggestions you have for converse, having conversations with children so i think you know it starts you know very, children and bilingual families will start those conversations themselves when they look at mommy and say mommy what do you call this Daddy calls it cast. What do you call it? So they're already having, you know, at a very young age, kids will pick this up. So I spoke to my oldest daughter in French. And by the time she was two and a half, I would say to her, for example, you know, it's dinner time, sweetie. And she turned to her father, and I say it in French, and she turned to her father and said, Mommy said it's dinner time. So she was translating for him because she'd already picked up, he doesn't, he doesn't French. <laughs> so I need to translate for him. And so those kind of conversations happen organically with very young children. Right. But then often once they settle into their knowledge around who is using the languages, we stop talking to them about it. And it's continuing those conversations on when we meet other people. You know, why does mommy switch to English when I meet somebody who's a Dutch speaker? Or why do we do this? Or, you know, within our home, when you have a little child, a friend comes to play, I'm going to still use French with you, but then I'll help your, your friend understand in English. So it's kind of all those little moment by moments. Um, and then it's as kids get older, you know, the agreements about what language do we speak at the dinner table? Right. Um, uh, and things like that. But a lot of it is, especially in, you know, bilingual and multilingual families outside their communities of practice, it's contextualizing for the children the very common um, family language dynamic of mommy speaks daddy's language, but daddy doesn't speak mommy's language. And what does that mean about the value of daddy's language and mommy's language? And this is, you know, this is something I come up against all the time. 
the mother's language is less valued. She's the one who's home with the children. It doesn't have the economic value. Daddy works in the other language. And so the kids themselves pull away from that language because they just think, well, it's obviously not very useful. And then they start saying, mommy, please don't speak to me in Portuguese at school. It's embarrassing. And that's when you know you're in trouble. <laughs> when they tell you your language is embarrassing, you're in trouble. And so you have to just continue. You know, it, yeah, it is true that daddy doesn't speak mommy's language. And that's pretty tough. But, you know, mommy had the opportunity to go live in that country or, you know, really like languages or however you contextualize it for your family is how your children will understand and develop healthy attitudes about their languages rather than these kind of skewed you know, but Russian is a secret language kind of attitudes. And then as your kids get older, it gets to be the, yes, you do have to learn to read and write in your language. And, you know, you can read Harry Potter, but you can read Harry Potter in French first, and then I'll let you read it in English. And, you know, that's when you start negotiating more with your kids about what they're willing or not willing to do. So let's talk about that. You wrote another piece, a beautiful piece recently about equity, inclusion, and bilingualism. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, that, you know, the world has been awakened in the last year or two to, you know, really hugely systemic issues around um, diversity, equity and inclusion and schools are, you know, quick on the uptake. Let's talk about diversity and representation of underrepresented populations. And that's often framed around race. It's often framed around sexual orientation. It's framed around gender. It's framed around lots of kinds of things, but it's never framed around language. And so you can, you know, you can walk into a school where 47 languages are spoken and only hear one. Right. And then you say, wait a minute, where's the diversity on? here? Right. Where's the inclusion here? Um, and I think it's really problematic because, you know, going back to that, you know, wonderful Jim Cummins quote that he says, when you, when you, when you tell a child to leave their language at the door, you tell, you know, you're shutting a child out of their education. And I think that we do that very often. Um, with good intentions, for the most part, like these kids have the opportunity to learn English. And particularly in international education, we really frame international education as, a, as, a, as an opportunity through the lens of privilege. What a privilege these kids have to go to these wonderful international schools and to meet all these diverse people and you know, live abroad and, and get an English language education. And when we look at something through that lens of privilege, we don't stop to think, what are the kids losing? because a lot of kids in international education lose their own language and their connection to their culture because of being schooled in English. And that can't be okay if we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion. And we can't be seeing only speak English here on the walls of classrooms. We can't be seeing in language policies, only English is spoken in the school. We can't be seeing kids having, you know, detentions after school for using their own language. Right. Um, and, and that still happens. Right. all over the place right. in international education and in state education. Right. And I think that we need to start talking about that aspect right. of diversity and inclusion as well. Right. Because when we think about colonial powers, the first thing they did when they went to conquer lands and countries is they said, you're not going to speak your language. You're going to speak English. Yeah. Right. And so absolutely, or Spanish or, or Portuguese Spanish. or French or whatever it was. And in the majority of those places, the language of education is still the former colonial language. Right. And so if you look at a place like Suriname, which was colonized by the Dutch, the Dutch, uh, the, the Sur Surinamese education system is nominally in Dutch. 
not very many people in Suriname speak Dutch anymore, except for in the major cities, but they're still all required to be educated. Why? Because Dutch is better, it's more useful. And that's that economic frame on languages that we talked about, that when you frame it as market opportunity economics, you go automatically for the higher status language. But that neglects everything that you lose when you go for that language. And I see that a lot, families choosing to pay so much money, you know, to scrimp and save and pay so much money to send their children to an English language international school for the opportunity it gives them. And what you end up with a lot of the time is a child with mediocre results on the IB because their English wasn't strong enough, getting into a mediocre North American university that their parents are gonna pay through the tooth again. And if they'd been left in their own school system in their own language, they would have graduated top of their class and went to the top university. And so the consequences are there, but we don't talk about it. Right. And then the consequences for kids, I've seen in all of my international schools, by 12th grade, the kid can speak and write fluently in English, can somewhat speak to their families in their home language, but they're illiterate in their home language. Yeah. And I think, you know, how the, the, the level of illiteracy varies. So a Spanish speaker, it's easier to kind of, you know, pretend your way through Spanish if you read and write in English. But if you're, you know, if you're a Mandarin speaker and you can't read and write in Mandarin, you really can't read and write in Mandarin. And to, you know, to go back and try and learn the 8,000 characters you need to write, write to be, you know, fully fluent is, you know, is a, is a Herculean task. And so, um, you know, we see it a lot, you know, kids who go into the, you know, into the DP and they should be doing their own languages, language A, and they can't because it's not good enough. Right. And, and that's right, a shame. And right there, I think that's another systematic thing. We have to convince the IB to change things as such as the labeling of language A and language B, because language A automatically becomes the more dominant language yeah. and, and language B becomes the lesser language. Yeah. Sure. But also, if if a language is your first language, you're only allowed to take it as language A. But if a school has kind of allowed your language to lapse and you can't do it at language B, you're not allowed to do it at lang- language A. You're not allowed to do it at language B. So you're just dis, you know disqualified from doing your own language completely. Right. Right. Um, and you know it, it's incredibly complex to try and support all of the languages supported in international schools. But the more we put into place systems and practices that prioritize certain languages over others, the more we entrench those ideas about the the marketability of certain languages and therefore their value. Well, you're coming to my second to second to last closing question. How can schools support bilingual families? So I think in two ways, and I think there's a direct way and an indirect way. Um, I think every school that works with language learners needs to have a staff person who understands bilingual development and who does family language planning with the the children who, as they're coming in. And so a couple of the schools that I work with have already started doing this. So we've just gotten the particular staff person. It's usually the EAL teacher, the head of EAL. So that as, as families are coming into the school, they're having a family language planning interview where the school is very clear and saying, you know, your language is just as important as English. Here are some things that you can do to continue developing it. We're going to help your child learn English, but we're, we don't want you to neglect the other language. So to get some of those key messages through and also to, you know, check on the child's fluency in that language, see if there are any red flags around language development, but to really get that message in from the bottom, your language is just as important. And we're going to, you know, be looking at that as a a part of your child's development. And the second is, you know, far more indirect, but it's just 
making sure that languages are a living and dynamic part of the school community and not a static part. I mean, I walk into schools all the time that have a beautiful wall with hello in 72 languages and you never hear a word of another language spoken. It's like, we see we're multilingual. Um, and I work with so many schools, and I've worked with schools, not so much schools I work with, I know of schools, but you know, they have a language policy, but it's filed somewhere and nobody ever looks at it or uses it. And a language policy needs to be a dynamic document that's referred to by the schools, that the teachers know what's in it, that the parents know what's in it, that the kids know what's in it, because that's where your classroom language policies or classroom engagements come from. And it's just, you know, looking at where are the spaces for multilingualism in our school. And, uh, you know, the space can be in a science class. So we're studying ecosystems. So everybody's got the drawing of the ecosystem and the information we're going to look for. And you're all going to go home and you're going to research an ecosystem in your language from wherever it is that language is from. And then they come in and share. And now you've got kids sharing ecosystems from all over the world. They've researched in their own language. They've developed some academic language. They've thought about it. They've explained it to their peers in English. You've enriched the content. You've enriched language development. You've enriched, enriched the homeschool connection to their families through science. Doesn't have to be through language and literacy. It doesn't have to be through fairy tales or fables. It can be concretely in and across your curriculum. Um, one of the schools that I work with um, has been, you know, we've been working on this for a while now, you know, developing um, dynamic multilingual practices. And they did, in, in their humanities, they trialed um, a really fantastic activity that I, I've worked done with other schools. But they did a brainstorm at the beginning of a unit. It was a unit about economics. So it's not an easy subject. They were year eight or nine, I think. And so they had a multilingual brainstorm. And the kids could put up words in any language about the topic of economics that they knew. Um, and so they were just throwing them out, putting them up, putting them up. And after that, they had to take them all and they had to figure out what they were in English. So they had to go find the child who wrote that one down and what the heck language is that? And can you say it for me? And by the way, what does it mean in English? And then they looked at the results and they figured out what are the connections we've made? Where are we on the right track? Where are we not? And so it started really powerful knowledge building and the teachers who had never done this before, they said, we had so much more input from the kids than when we've done it before, just saying, what do you know about the question in English? And like three kids would say something. And they said, we've never seen participation and idea development like that. And so, and, you know, it didn't take them more than five minutes extra for the kids to do the translation into English. But wow, what a powerful learning experience for the kids and for the teachers. Right. And this is your case for bilingual, like allowing all languages to be at school, because when we don't allow languages, we limit participation. And when we limit participation, we limit participation. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'd say we limit participation and limit engagement. Yes, that's exactly it. That's the connection between it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I the picture that you gave me was like a welcome wall with like 47 languages and, and only one is spoken. Right. And I, I think. I want to add to your imagery and say one of the things that teach schools can do to help bilingual families is make sure that if there's a person that speaks the student's home language, that they're allowed to use that. Because when I, this is particularly yeah. when I go to elementary schools and I work with elementary schools, uh, I see a Lao, fluent Lao uh, TA who has a master's in education struggle with English to teach the Lao kid 
who's learning in a Lao school. This happens in Thai schools. This happens in Cambodian schools. This happens in every single school that I've been to. And so that's the one thing you can do and say, yeah. please speak your home language with the kids if they speak your home language yeah. as well. Yeah. And I think actually what you just did was what I was going to say. I would not say allow. I would say encourage. Yes. Yes. Thank because you. allowing makes it still sound a bit illicit. Exactly. We're going to allow you to use your language. Right. Encourage is, is much more positive because I know a lot of schools that allow but the kids won't use their own language because they feel like they're being allowed it as a sign that their English isn't good enough. Right. And you shift the discourse when it's, we encourage you to use your own language together. Why wouldn't you right. shift the discourse away from it's a deficit strategy to use your own language here to it's a positive strategy to use your own language here. That's another therapy session for me. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's end with this. Um, I usually ask, I feel like I want to ask more questions about your family. So I'll ask this last closing three questions. If it's, of course, if you feel free to share. You said that you've learned a lot from research and a lot from your kids. What are three lessons that your kids have taught you? And let me frame it with this way. Uh, what have they taught you a red light? Something that uh, you recommend teachers and families stop doing. Uh, yellow light is what do you recommend as to people to start doing kind of like when you go to a yellow light you start slowing down and a green light what do you recommend people do continue to do so i think a red light for me if i've got your color system correctly um, would be um don't push the child to fit your agenda we go back to not all children are you know, children are not sponges every child is linguistically different some are not interested in languages some are not gifted with languages and if you have a really clear agenda and you make everything about that agenda your child is going to suffer in multiple other ways and i've come across this so many times you know the father says i speak eight languages why can't my son because he's not you right. <laughs> and he has other strengths but he hates languages and so if something's not working right stop reassess what could be the potential effect if we push this and what would be the, you know, the compromise if we stop and so that's something that I learned you know with my twins at the French school that as much as I wanted them to get that full academic fluency in French it it would have been so emotionally detrimental to one of them to go through that kind of the French system is very strict and very punitive that it probably would have set them up for academic failure for the rest of their life. So is that the consequence you want of being bilingual? That's a pretty big consequence. That's the first one. The, the yellow light, um, I think we could interpret two ways. It's like you're slowing down to stop or are you getting ready to go? Exactly. Because in England, the amber light goes both ways. We also get a yellow before a green here. Um, I th and I think that for me, that would be like when you're choosing voluntarily other language education for your children right it's not necessary to accelerate it at a very young age right. it's okay to let and better to get them a grounding in their own language first literacy in their own language first and then english language schooling because then you can have both and so we don't need to push through the yellow straight on to green and go they've got to have english when they're four and then they don't have Vietnamese. If we do Vietnamese until they're eight, yes. and then we do English, they're gonna have Vietnamese and English. And so you can, you know, that's a far stronger um, 
you know, kind of method for a children for children. And I would think in terms of green, I think it's important to just always try and talk about language as something that's fun and useful rather than something that is marketable or difficult. A lot of parents have a narrative with their kids about how hard languages are and that turns them off. Um, in fact, I remember reading not long after we came to the UK, this story that um, parents were having doctors write notes for their children to get them off of taking modern foreign languages because it was too stressful. Modern foreign language is too stressful. My child can't handle it. It's causing anxiety. And I thought like, I would have wanted one of those for maths and physics, <laughs> but that was not an option. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it, look at some language as something engaging, raise their curiosity, raise their awareness, play with cognates, play with what things look like, look at different scripts, but make it all about how interesting and, you know, potentially fun and useful languages are rather than, you know, if you don't learn this language this well, we'll have to pay for your university or, you know, like parents put a lot of pressure on kids. Right. I think we need to keep it far more organically what's useful and fun about languages rather than, um, you know, punitive. Could I ask you one more question? Because you, you raised sure. something that's so very important. Let's say that you said, okay, you want to have the person speak Vietnamese or the home language all the way. Let's start with Vietnamese to give them a great foundation. But what if they say, a parent says, but then they will enroll in the EAL program or the ESL program. Or they will be behind in English because they're going into an English speaking school. What do you say to that? Um, they're going to be behind even if they start when they're four. <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, I'm not sure if I put it in my book or not, but with parents, I use the image of the, you know, the game of Jenga yes. with the stacks of blocks. And we talk about, you know, the bottom block is the language a child is strong enough, strong, strongest in from birth, their dominant language. Mm -hmm. And if you give them a really strong base on your stack of blocks, you can keep building on top and it'll stay stable. But if you make your stack unstable and you keep building, it's just going to fall over. And so, the stronger, and we, and we know, you know, there's so much clear research from all over the world that this, the stronger a child's home language, the more easily they'll learn a new language at yes. school. Yes. And so if you think about little three-year-old kids or four-year-old kids, their own language isn't even fully developed yet. And we're trying to build another one on top and keep that one going. That's a lot. But if we give them until they're eight or nine years old, they're fully literate in their language, they can read, they can write, they can talk. And then we build English on top, they're gonna learn English more quickly because they're building it on a solid foundation already. Um, and I, I think that, and you know, we know from Canadian immersion research, years of it, decades of it, that in Canada, we have early immersion, which starts in kindergarten when kids are five, delayed immersion, which starts in upper elementary, and late immersion, which starts at the beginning of secondary school. And when they look at the, you know, the composite results of those kids at the end of secondary, there are no statistical differences in their fluency in French, wow. except for accent. So the younger, the younger kids do, are more likely, not guaranteed, to have that mythical native speaker accent, which is irrelevant anyway. But you so you start in kindergarten, and you're not any more fluent than someone who started in grade seven. And that's because someone who starts in grade seven has a strong first language, is fully cognitively developed. They can just learn a lot faster. And so really it's about understanding that later doesn't mean worse or less successfully. It's just different. And well, it gives them a better chance to really take their own language with them. Mm. And now I've just scuppered 
the marketing plans of international schools around the world. <laughs> <laughs> but you've also given all these bilingual families a starting point. I would, I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, where were you like eight years ago when my niece was born? I could have been like, please read this book. I could have given it to my sister and her husband, like, please just let them start with Vietnamese because that'll be the greatest foundation. And you just gave us a great foundation with this conversation. So Elwin, thank you. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. I <laughs> Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I was once on vacation in Vietnam. I befriended a young Vietnamese American in her mid twenties who also booked the same tour. However, she was unlike any other Vietnamese American her age I've ever met. Both of her languages, both Vietnamese and English, were perfect. I was so ashamed at my third grade level Vietnamese around her much more beautiful, fluent, elegant, and academic Vietnamese. As our tour was winding down, I sheepishly asked her, how did your Vietnamese become so fluent when you lived in America? She smiled and said, I didn't use English until I was in school. Vietnamese was the only language we used in the house. I learned to read it and write it as well. Though she did not say this at the time, it seemed like her family had an intentional plan for her to learn Vietnamese. It didn't happen passively, which was my experience. This was Elwin's key message about raising bilingual children. We have to plan for what we want in the end. Lastly, I want to thank you for staying this long as Elwin's central message of dismantling language hierarchy is so important to us as teachers of multilingual students. We must ensure that English is not more highly valued than other languages. And just like raising bilingual children, schools have to be intentional about educating children to be multilingual citizens. In the next episode, we talk with the one and only Dr. Kathy Escamilla about being bilingual from the start. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Yeah.